please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. We are going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4 through chapter 7 tonight. So I hope you brought your sleeping bags and tents. No, I'm just kidding. We are. I'm not kidding about that. We are going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7 um, together. And I'm really excited about it. But we are going to read... Um, just chapter 7, verse 3. And so if you would find chapter 7, verse 3, and then stand in reverence as we read God's Word together this evening. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's pray. God, we all come here this evening from different lives, different circumstances, different things going on. And God... It's an amazing thought that though we come from all these different walks of life and all these different circumstances and we all did different things this very day, we come to hear from the one true and living God. And we know that no matter where we are in life, your word is completely relevant to every one of us this evening. So God, I pray that you would bring us face to face with your truth, that you would bring us face to face with Jesus our Lord. Help us to see him, help us to treasure him, help us be prepared to live for him. Transform us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I woke up shivering cold one night the other week when it was really cold outside. I think it hit around zero, and I woke up really cold realizing that the temperature inside of my house was beginning to feel dangerously similar to the temperature outside of my house, and so I got up and I stumbled my way in the dark towards the hallway thermostat, and I looked at it and I realized that it was getting down into the 50s. Now that's pretty cold, especially for someone from South Alabama. And so I began doing what I know to do in a situation like this. Thermostat says 50. I, I need to start pressing buttons on this thing. I need to start playing with switches. And so I began to turn the air conditioner on and then I would turn it back to the heat and then I would play with the temperature and I would move it this way and I would move it that way and still nothing happened. And so with the extent of my repair knowledge completely exterminated, I called my home warranty company to set up an appointment. <laughs> now, this was the middle of the night, but they say they have 24-hour service. That's not true. But I did call them, and we rent our basement out to some, real, some friends of ours right now, and, and we have a whole unit down there, and they're renting that from us, and uh, so when they woke up, I said, did you guys notice it getting really cold last night? And, and, and the young man that 
Josh that stays down there said, yes, uh, I, I forgot to tell you the breaker went out last night. And so he went and tripped the breaker and the heat comes back on and I go and stand beside the vent and thaw out and thankfully no one had to come fix my furnace when it was cold outside. But it was a reminder to me, it was a reminder that I don't often realize how important power is to my life. You don't, you don't think about that very often, I bet. I know I don't think about that very often, but I want you to think about all of the things you do every day that depends on electrical power. Think about it. You take hot showers, you drink cold milk, you brew coffee, I'm sure an alarm clock wakes you up, you have a warm house if you want to get on the internet, all of that, everything basically that you do is influenced, helped along, possibly even made possible by electrical power in your house. And in an instant, if that power goes out, your entire life is changed pretty dramatically, I might add. And I got to thinking about that. And I also got to thinking about the reality that what's true about power in our homes is also true about power in our lives. It's another area that I don't think we think about very often. That we are dependent upon power in our lives for just about everything that we do. And power comes in many different forms. Power in our lives comes sometimes in the form of money, sometimes in the form of influence, good health, resources, connections, relationships. But every single day in our lives, we are dependent upon power. We all have it, we all use it, but we usually don't begin to think about it until it is taken away from us, until we begin to realize that we have a shortage of power. There's something wrong, there's something I can't control, there's something I'm lacking, and in that moment, we begin to reflect. Life has a way of reminding us from time to time that we're not quite as powerful as we think. And that's a good thing, I might add. But Israel, when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, is in the middle of a power shortage. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel. That's what's happening up until chapter 4. The leadership in Israel, there's no king yet. There's a priest. And his name is Eli. And he takes charge of the land with the help of his two sons. And we've learned in the first three chapters that this leadership, that these priests are very corrupt. And God has vowed that he is going to cut them off. Eli and his two sons will be cut off. They will no longer lead Israel. And they will, they will no longer have a dynasty, a lineage of priests after them. God has vowed to cut them off. But if you're familiar with 1 Samuel, you'll know that there's also been a lot of hope in the first three chapters of the book. You see, there's a barren woman named Hannah. But she's not barren anymore. She was barren, but she prayed to God and God blessed her with a baby. And if you've studied your Old Testament, if you've been reading through the Bible with Ashland even this year, you probably realize that when barren women start having babies, 
wonderful things are about to happen. Hannah was barren. Hannah has been given a baby. Hannah's baby's name is Samuel, the namesake for this book that we're reading out of. And by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, Hannah's baby son, Samuel, has grown into a man and he is beginning his ministry in verse 1. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And you would, you would imagine at this point, okay, we've been waiting for Samuel. Samuel has arrived on the scene. This is the hope that God has given Israel. We are just told in chapter 4, verse 1, that Samuel is beginning his ministry. And yet, surprisingly, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 does not mention Samuel's name again. And it's really interesting. Samuel is not a major character in these chapters. In fact, he does not appear again in the narrative until chapter 7, verse 3. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is this. There's a different star of this story. What you will find in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and what you will find 37 times in these three chapters is the word, the Ark of the Covenant. Or the Ark. Or sometimes it's called the Ark of God. 37 times the Ark of the Covenant is the star of this story. The main actor it's the headliner. And let me remind you of what the Ark represented. The Ark of the Covenant was a gold-covered box that had angels on the lid, and it was full of symbolism. This was the place where God met with His people. This represented this gold box that was about four foot long and two feet tall. This gold box represented the very presence of the covenant Lord of Israel. And so when you read Ark of the Covenant 37 times, you are to think Covenant Lord. God is the star of this story. And it's all about Him. And it's all about power. It's all about God showing us what power really is. And the first thing that we'll notice is in chapter 4, a power outage. Look with me at chapter 4. Again, the first two verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So we've got a battle going on. The Philistines are the mortal enemies of the Israelites. And the Philistines are encamped at Aphek. And the Israelites are encamped at Ebenezer. Ebenezer means rock of help. Rock of help. That's where they are encamped. But it's really ironic at this point in the story. Because here is Israel encamped at the rock of help and they are about to go do battle against the Philistines. But look with me at what happens in verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field 
of battle. They're at the rock of help. They're at Ebenezer. And yet they do not receive help. In fact, they are massacred to the tune of 4,000 casualties. This is a major military defeat. And so, the Philist- and so the Israelites say, okay, well, let's try something else. That obviously didn't work. Let's try something else. And so look with me at verses 3 through 11. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So, they get the Ark of the Covenant, they bring it into the camp, and the narrative begins to build. It seems like the Philistines are in trouble. There's a mighty shout. Do you remember the last time there was a mighty shout from Israel in the context of a battle? You may recall the battle of Jericho where the walls came crumbling down. There's fear. The Philistines are afraid. In fact, there's even a reference in verse 8 to what happened at Egypt when God miraculously saved His people in the Exodus and brought them out of slavery and massacred the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Certainly, this is looking good for the Israelites. So if you were predicting the ending based on those verses that we just read, you might be surprised to continue reading what happens in verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled Every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is about as bad as it gets. And if we keep reading, it gets even worse. For as soon as Eli the priest hears of what happened, as soon as someone comes and reports to him that the ark has been captured and that his two sons have been killed in battle, he falls over backwards and breaks his neck and dies. 
God has fulfilled his promise to cut off Eli and his two sons. But the ark of God has been captured. And look with me, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 21, and how it describes what's happened. You see, one of the sons of Eli had a wife, and she was pregnant, and she gave birth to a child. And in verse 21, we read this, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. That quote from the daughter of Eli, the glory of God has departed, if you look down into the bottom of your Bibles, if you have notes, you might see a little reference there. This literally means gone into exile. The ark of God has been captured and has gone into exile. The ark of God has gone into exile. Israel did not receive the power that they thought they were going to receive when they brought the ark of the covenant into the camp. They didn't receive it. God left them out to dry. He did not protect them. He did not help them. He did not slay their enemies. And so we have to ask the question, why is that? Is God not committed to His people? Because if He is committed to His people, certainly He's not going to allow the enemies of His people to defeat His people. And that might be a bad assumption to make. Because what we find in this narrative is an example of Israel wanting power but not receiving power because they viewed power in self-serving terms. They misunderstood power. They treated the ark of God as if it was a lucky rabbit's foot that they could call upon to help them when they most needed it. Even though they were not serving the one true and living God. They were not devoted to the one true and living God. Even though the nation of Israel at this time in their history was a wreck of spiritual adultery. The audacity to think that they could live and not be devoted to God and yet call upon Him when they needed Him and He would come running to help them. We think that same type thing all the time. I had the opportunity this past week to receive a phone call from a lady who told me that there were two spirits in her house and wanted to know if I could come to her house and help her with this problem. And on this phone call, she said to me, I bet you think I'm crazy, don't you? But I want to tell you the truth. I, I didn't think she was crazy. I think most of us are crazy because we don't believe stuff like that happens, to be honest with you. Now, I don't know if there's really two spirits in her house or not. But I knew that on that phone was a woman who was afraid. A woman who realized that there are things out there beyond her control and that she was threatened by those things. And as I talked with her and as I quizzed her, I began to find out more and more about her story. I began to learn that she had tried everything 
she knew to do to get these two spirits, she said, out of her house. She had consulted a medium. She had consulted some type of priest. She had called several churches in town. She had bought crosses and put them in every room in her house. She was desperate for some type of power to come and alleviate this problem, this other power that she had no control over. And so I began to quiz her. Where do you go to church? Are you involved in a church? Do you, do you understand the gospel? And as I quizzed her about the gospel, and as I quizzed her about her life, I began to get a sense that I didn't think she had a relationship with Jesus at all. I began to get a sense that she wasn't committed to his lordship, but she wanted the benefits She wanted the benefits. She thought that perhaps I could help her. She thought that perhaps the cross could help her. She thought that perhaps she could have access to this power without relationship with this power. And that's the problem. And that's the problem that I'm convinced that you and I make all of the time in our lives. To think that we can somehow manipulate God into giving us what we want, into giving us what we desire even though we do not live our lives completely for God, even though we only call upon Him perhaps when it's most convenient or when we're in most need. C.S. Lewis, writing a book called A Grief Observed after he lost his wife, which is is probably a very appropriate time to dwell upon issues like this. But he said this in that book, God can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're not really approaching him at all. God is not the means to any other end. He is not the road to get you to some preconceived notion some goal that you've defined for yourself. Israel didn't have a relationship with God at this time. They saw God as a lucky rabbit's foot. They saw Him as a power to be manipulated. They saw Him as the means to get what they wanted. And so often in our lives, we want to enjoy God's power without getting God. We want the security that He gives us. We want the health that He gives us. We want the family that He can give us. We want all of those things, but then we want to set limits upon how far He's allowed to really intrude upon our lives. I minister to college students. And one of the things that is common for college students is it's it's an abbreviation called DTR. You might have heard of DTR. What DTR is, is when you're dating someone, it's the conversation where you define the relationship. So college students do this all the time. Did you have the DTR talk yet? Well, I have some friends that are not college students. They're really good friends of mine. And when we first started having a friendship with this couple, Nikki and I, they set us down one night to DTR with us, to define the relationship. And it was really odd to me. They said, if you're going to be our friend, this is what friendship with us really looks like. And so they began to tell us and explain to us what the expectations for a friendship with them were going to look like. 
And I told them straight up, this is the weirdest conversation I think I've ever had. But I use this illustration simply to, to, to point out that when it comes to God, you and I are not authorized to DTR with Him. We do not get to define the relationship. The relationship is non-negotiable. He says, I will not be used. I am not a tool in your toolbox that you can pull out at your convenience. You either give me your whole entire heart or nothing. With the Lord God of the universe, it is all or nothing. And if you want access to his power, you better be in submission to his control. You better get any notion of your own kingdom and your own dreams and what you want your life to look like defined by you out of your head. Because when we come to this God, when we come before this power that is greater than any other power in the history of the universe that you will ever come into contact with, when we come before Him, His kingdom is the only kingdom that matters. And He wants our hearts. And He's willing to let us fail in life to get our hearts and that's what he's doing with Israel right here success in battle is not even important to the Lord God in this in this story he wants their hearts he refuses to be used by them and so what we find second in chapters 5 through chapter 7 verse 2 is power rerouted Power rerouted. We learned from chapter 4, verse 22, that the ark of God has gone into exile, which is really interesting. Because back in Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 58 through 68, God had given a warning to the people of Israel. And the warning for Israel was that the punishment for their unfaithfulness would be exile. He told them from the very beginning, if you do not keep this covenant, I will send you into exile. Israel had failed to keep the covenant. Israel had been unfaithful. And yet Israel's not in exile here. Who is in exile? Israel's not. Think about this with me. Instead of Israel's humiliation, instead of Israel going into exile, God Himself has been humiliated. God Himself has gone into exile. He has taken upon Himself the very curse that He promised Israel they would have to face for unfaithfulness. And He's about to defeat their enemies through the means of His own humiliation. Have you ever heard a story like that before? Sound familiar? I hope it does. I hope you'll remember the Son of God, born of a virgin, perfect in every way, completely innocent, who deserved nothing, nothing but blessing, but took upon Himself the curse that you and I deserved and was humiliated. Dying on the cross, bearing the very wrath of God. And I hope you'll remember that even in his humiliation, he was crushing the head of the serpent. 
Because that's exactly what's happening here. Power is being redefined. God is saying, listen, power is not a force that the strong use to manipulate the weak. Get that notion out of your head. God says power is to be here from this point forward forever defined by the cross. From this point forward forever defined by sacrificial love that the strong uses to serve the weak. By going into exile, God is teaching Israel that you simply cannot separate power from relationship. He is teaching Israel that it is foolish to get in a power struggle with God because God is using all of His power for the good of His people. And the only right relationship to be in in regards to His power is to trust Him, which is exactly what they don't want to do. Because Israel would rather play God than trust God. Just like you and I. But look with me at chapter 5, the first five verses here. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. Pastor Nate used to have a car named Dagon. I'll just let let him tell you that story some other time. They bring it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. This is their idol. This is the God of the Philistines that they worship. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And listen, this is my favorite part of this whole section. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Don't you love that? I mean, just stop and think about that. They have to pick little Dagon up and set him back on the shelf. Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The ark of God goes into the temple of Dagon, and Dagon falls face down. And subservience, posture of worship before the one true and living God. And the people of the Philistines come in and they brush him off and clean him up. And they put him back up there. And they come in the next day and what has happened? He's fallen again. But oh my, this time he's fallen and he's lost his head and his hands. Genesis 3.15. Seed born of woman will crush the head of the serpent, the enemies of God are being crushed. They are being crushed. They are being ritually dismembered. And that's not all. I'm going to summarize a little bit here. So from this point, the Philistines decide, hey, we are going to send this thing out of here. So they get it out of there, and and in Ashdod, where it was, tumors begin to come about upon all the people. There's a plague All of the people of Ashdod break out in tumors. In verse 8 of chapter 5 we read, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, 
What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Can you imagine this conversation? I don't want it. You take it. We don't want it. You take it. Send it to them. They didn't even know we had it. So they send the ark to Gath. And you keep reading and we find out that when the ark comes to Gath, the same thing happens. Tumors. They send it to Ekron. Same thing. Ekron says, we don't want it. Tumors. The end result of trying to manipulate and use God without a relationship with God is always self-destruction. It's always self-destruction. God is declaring war upon the Philistines. And so they decide to send it back, and they come up with this plan that they are going to take two oxen that have never been yoked together before, and they are going to put the Ark of the Covenant on these two oxen. And if you, I don't know much about farming, but apparently two oxen that have never been yoked before are probably not going to like make it. And so they know that if they put the Ark of the Covenant on these two oxen and let it go, and it goes back to Israel, then it must be that God did all of this to them. But if it doesn't go back to Israel, they're still not sure. I guess maybe at this point, it still could be coincidence or something. And so they do this, and, and, the, and believe it or not, of course, what happens is the two oxen take the Ark of the Covenant back to what we find in verse 18, the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And then we keep reading in verse 19, and this is what happens. At this point, the Ark of the Covenant is back in Israel. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. These are Israelites now. Because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us. God is willing to strike down Philistines wherever he may find them. If he finds them in Israel, he will strike them down. If he finds them in Gath, he will strike them down. If he finds them in Ashdod, he will strike them down. If he finds them within Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, he will strike them down. But what this text reminds us of is something that is so powerful, especially when we get to the New Testament and Paul begins preaching in Acts 17, 25. And it's a reminder to us of this powerful truth that Paul says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know, one thing you'll never have to do with God is brush Him off and set Him back up because He fell. He never falls. By definition, He will not fall. He will not make a mistake. He will not falter. He doesn't need you and me for anything. 
At this point, all it is is the ark of God being sent from one city to the next and destruction, havoc, judgment is going. Everywhere the ark goes, judgment is going. No human is helping him. There's no Israelites there to carry the ark from place to place. There's no priests there. There's no nothing. It's God alone declaring war. And that's pretty frightening when you think about it. But I want you to think also about how comforting it is. How comforting it is to think that God is at work where no human mind could ever fathom. How comforting it is to think that God is working even where I'm not. How comforting it is to think that when I get down on my knees and I pray to God for the salvation of my mother and for the salvation of my brother and for the salvation of people that I love who do not know Him. And I look at it from one perspective and I'm tempted to despair as I think that it doesn't seem like they are ever going to believe the gospel. And I have been praying, and I have been praying, and I have been praying for years, God, for you to do this. And if I look at them it's, and I talk to them, I can become so frustrated. And then I have to remember what God is teaching us. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. He allows us to be used, and it's a privilege, but He doesn't need any of us. He's out at work. He's at work right now in your life in ways that you could never imagine. Finally, I want you to see a power surge in chapter 7. Verses 3 through 14. Look with me first at verses 3 through 9. So the ark of the Lord is back in Israel. And Samuel reappears in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. It's a really powerful passage of scripture. Here you have this rebellious nation, this rebellious people repenting. After all of this, after losing thousands and thousands and thousands of people, after seeing 
their leaders die after seeing the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of their identity as a people, get captured by their mortal enemies, they have been brought low. They have been made aware of their rebellion. And we see all kinds of different aspects of repentance in this passage. We see them putting away sin in verse 3. We see them returning to the Lord in verse 3. We see them confessing their sin in verse 6. We see Samuel making a sacrifice for them, an atonement for their sins in verse 9. We see Samuel acting as an intercessor on behalf of his people. Samuel returns. They can't do it on their own. And all of these aspects are necessary for repentance, for sinful people to be brought back into a right relationship with God. This is what it looks like. I'm a sinner. I admit I'm a sinner. I want to turn away from my sin. I want to turn toward the Lord God. I'm trusting in the atoning sacrifice that He is providing for me in Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my intercessor to bring me back to God. This is the gospel. And that's what happens. And in verses 10 through 14, everything's changed now. The people of God are now in right relationship with God. And now that the people of God are in right relationship with God, look at what happens. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel and the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shin and called its name, here we are again, Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Here's what's happening. When we are in right relationship with God, God uses His power for our good. When we are in right relationship, submitted our lives to Him, all of that power is poured out to to protect us and for our good. And, And the lesson here is not that nothing temporally bad will ever happen to you. The lesson for us in this passage is that God the warrior will crush your enemies for you. That's what he's doing. And that's what he's doing today as people bow their knees to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance in the gospel. And what God is doing here is teaching us that true power is not about human strength. It's not about mustering big armies. It's not about accumulating possessions. It's not about manipulating power structures. What he is teaching us is that true power is found in weakness and in repentance. It's found in the ark of God in exile. It's found in in Christ Jesus bearing the wrath of God for his people. 
true power is found in suffering. It's found in love. It's found when those who are powerful, who have much, who have been entrusted with much, look at those who are weak and who are being belittled and decide to use their power for the good of those people. That's what God's showing us here. Athens at Assurance Pregnancy Center. Happens in orphanages all across the land. And it is supposed to be the way we live our lives on this side of the cross from here until Jesus returns. And it's a realization that Paul again finds in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 beginning in verse 10. Where Paul talks about receiving revelations, that he had, he had received revelations from God. And in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that's true power. Let's pray.